Now you should listen to this because this concerns you. This is about an uh, evil genius in love. Evil genius mind. <laughs> it woke me up from my sleep and I don't like it. No, you're an evil genius is what you are. If this works, you're, you're some kind of a, a evil genius. Honest to God. Hello and welcome to the Evil Genius Chronicles. I am your little podcast buddy, Dave Slusher. Welcome to this show. This show is being recorded for January 12th, 2023. Oh, it's all fresh, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing feels like it's the same shit all over again. It's all new. First, the business. The show is not kid safe, not work safe. We've already been through this. I realized I swore in the intro. I usually try to not swear before... <laughs> The disclaimer, but uh, so be it. This show is Creative Commons licensed, non-commercial, attribution, 4.0, unported. Theme music by the late great band, The Gentle Readers. Bandwidth is via Cashfly under the kind auspices of Backbeat Media. I'm still not sure what an auspice is. I do not speak for my day job because I am not on brand. And although in the course of my day job, I represent the brand for them, I am not representing the brand now. <clears throat> At best, I will say things off-brand. At worst, who knows? <laughs> the sky's the limit, or the floor's the limit on uh, that behavior. Let us get to some music. Heard about this from Turned Out a Punk. Um, I've got like 500 uh, episodes of that thing in the backlog. And he uh, very recently interviewed uh, J.D. Pincus, who I know from the Butthole Surfers. And uh, he also does this like trippy bluegrassy, I don't know what you would call it. <laughs> so the, the same kind of um, sensibility that you hear in that Butthole Surfers music, uh, let's bluegrass it up and uh, recognizably uh, weird whatever this is. So from the album Fungus Shui, this is, I can't even say that one without laughing, Fungus Shui, this is J.D. Pincus with Gettin' It. Apostrophe is in this, by the way. There's no G, second G, it's Gettin' It. Yeah. 
I thought I would let that go through all the dog barks at the end because <laughs> it both uh, makes it seem uh, a little butthole surfer-y and also uh, pretty much uh, we and every household around here has a couple dogs uh, barking in the yard uh, at some point or another. J.D. Pincus from the album Fungus Shway that was getting it, not getting it, it was getting it. And now, uh, a feature of this show that I 100% forgot to do last time. Embarrassingly, uh, when I went to edit the show, I'm like, wait a second, where's the uh, th- where's the thing? It's not there. It's completely uh, absent and missing. And that is a thing we call the reading. Give the patrons. <laughs> Even last week, when it wasn't there, I... Uh, it- they, they had done this. They went to bit.ly, bit.ly slash EGC Patreon. They pledged to support the shambling mess. And last week when I forgot to do this, it was shambling. All right. The following people are hereby thanked. Derek Coward, Adam Rittenauer, Ken Kennedy, Paul Fisher, Arhuli, Robert Harvey, Paul Smith, Andrew Heron, Grant Pachoco, Tony Ewing, Craig Stepp, Shannon Nelson, Charlotte Kennedy, Leah, the Enigmagic, Angela Lee, Chuck Tomasi, Stuart Maxwell, Michael Butler, Bruce Lerner, Skeeter Murphy, Robert Gibson, Len Edgerly, Melissa A. Bartell, Andrew Howe, Michael Street, Neil Forker, Dyko, Kevin Freedy, Brian Springer, Tim Shaw, Rob Usden, John Gehring, Wayne Pittenger, Brian Jones, Joe Pollock, Jeff Dangle, J.P. Shippard, Steve Holden, and Patrons in Exile, Nutty Nukchas, and Eric Peterson. Steve Holden got out of exile, and he did it the hard way by creating a whole new Patreon account. Patreon, you are so weird. But thank you, one and all, for uh, uh, helping. And if you would like to have your name there, go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash E-G-C Patreon. And with that, let us kill the music. I'm going to talk a little about uh, Mastodon. Not a whole lot. I will say that um, I figured something out. Um, I was looking to to um, do the equivalent. I have had the social network auto poster plugin on my WordPress blog for many years. <laughs> Probably 10 years. I mean, there was a point in time where it was posting to Google Plus for me. You know, it was doing all kinds of stuff. Um and I was using that basically as the heart of my posse system when I was never like tweeting uh, or Facebooking directly. I would do it on my WordPress and push out. Um, but that plugin kind of sucked. It bit rotted. APIs changed. You know, it didn't keep up with it. It was, you know, it was waging a, a losing battle. I think it still. So oddly enough, Twitter is like one of the few things that it successfully works with. Um, I think it also posts to a Tumblr blog that is literally nothing but reposts of my show. But generally, I don't like it. And I was looking to see, but does this thing support posting to Mastodon? And I looked at that, and then I looked at some posting you know, plugins that would post to Mastodon for you. And then I found out, um, by looking at this, that you don't have to have anything post to Mastodon for you. AKA, like where you're saying, uh, give it my Mastodon credentials and post on my behalf. You don't have to do that. What you can do is there's a plugin called ActivityPub, and when you um, enable that thing, effectively you're turning your WordPress blog into uh, a Mastodon instance. So it does the Mastodon stuff, and people can in fact uh, like follow you from that. And I was like, huh, interesting. So what I did was I set it up from my main uh, Mastodon account that I'm using. I followed the blog. So now when I make a post on WordPress, it shows up as a thing that uh, shows up as a thing in my Mastodon list and I can boost it. And so effectively, I get everything I wanted to do without actually posting it, you know, via without shoving it, shoveling it into my uh, main Mastodon account. So that's good enough for me. So I uh, I actually like this pattern and I had no idea a week ago this is what I was going to be doing. But this is uh, that's what I'm doing. Now, while we're talking about Mastodon, um, the I, the one thing about this is that I have, I think, uh, over the course of however many years, 15 years, I guess longer if you go back to 
Yeah, let's say Twitter. I don't remember what social media. I was on tribe.net, you know, in when I lived in Chicago. So we're talking like 2003, 2004. Um I don't. I didn't do much with MySpace. You know, thing Friendster. I don't believe I was even on Friendster. If I was, I don't remember being on Friendster. But that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the friend feed was my favorite. Uh, R.I.P. Friend feed. Um, mostly because of like the level of the discourse. I just liked the way it feels, and the it's very very tiny affordances that control how these uh, things feel, right? Um, I need not rehash what I did in previous shows about Usenet, and that was kind of like the high water mark for me. Uh, it's SFRT on Genie and uh, Usenet, but um, one of the things that I realized is that um, via Twitter and Facebook uh, and years of practice, I had gotten myself into a, a, a healthy position with it, and, with, and that healthy position is mostly not looking at it. And so now. With Mastodon, I'm back to, uh, you know, I've got a whole fresh new shiny thing and I'm building up the network and I'm finding people to subscribe to. And I'm picking up the thing obsessively and looking at it. And I realize, have I just traded something I had under control for something that now is not under control? It's like, oh, God. So, um, Absolutely, I have got to get myself to a healthy level. Just because it's Mastodon and just because it's the Fediverse does not mean I need a thing to stare at every five minutes to pick up my phone and say, what's happened on Mastodon in the last 10 minutes since I've been looking at it? Is something burning that needs my attention? I've mostly weaned myself off that. So why am I, why am I back on this wagon? I was off the wagon. Or I was on the wagon. Oh my god! I'm. So, this is literally a Seinfeld bit. <laughs> I'm back on the wagon after I was off the wagon. <laughs> literally Seinfeld. Sorry. Okay, but that, that's that. But one of the things I did notice on Mastodon, because I do follow a lot of writers, and so I talked about the Wandering Shop seems to be where a lot of the science fiction community uh, has posted up. Literally posting as they post up, but you know what I mean. At which means that when there are minor outrages that blow up into uh, shitstorms, Wandering Shop's going to be kind of where it happens. My, my favorite of these things of all time was, uh, you know, when Dropbox published Terms of Services, uh, you know, saying that, you know, you allow them to publish, you know, your stuff from one machine to another machine. And writers got, you don't have the right to publish my own, my fantastic manuscripts. It's like, Jesus Christ. Dropbox, that's literally the term of art for how you get the, it's publish and subscribe from one thing to another. It doesn't mean they're, they plan on printing up your manuscripts. Don't, don't flatter yourself, honey. <laughs> it's like, uh, you're adorable. No one wants your unpublished, <laughs> uh, unreadable manuscripts. A similar type thing is, uh, I guess Apple is doing this thing where they're going to do AI narration and boom, up in arms. This is awful. This will put, it's almost exactly the same thing as, uh, you know, the previous show when I talked about the um, uh, self-checkout putting people out of work. It will put the narrators out of work and bloody, bloody you know, whatever. And, of course, there was a, a practically immediate um, counter-argument from, you know, accessibility people saying there are books that will never, uh, would never be commercially viable to get uh, an audiobook, but now you could, uh, you know, you could on the fly, uh, generate one, which is, remember how Kindle, you know, Kindle has that, uh, AI voice reader, you know, text to speech, read aloud thing and very, and, and you know, very similar arguments about all of that. Now here's where I stand. And it's very odd for somebody who listens to podcasts all day, every day. I have talked on here about how I just don't particularly like audiobooks. And oddly enough, the audiobooks I most, I least like, I hate most, um, I do not listen to these. However, um, I have a spouse that does. And sometimes um, if she's listening on her phone and I'm walking through the room, I'll listen to them, like the Harry Potter books and things like that. Um, the Harry Potter books being a classic one because people love that. I guess there's a beloved uh, narrator that does all these voices. I fucking hate the voices. I hate the voices. <laughs> I hate the accents. I hate the listening to the, the 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 affecting the different voice for the different characters. 
I understand that that's what most people like, and that is the thing that makes it unlistenable to me. I absolutely not. That's the part. That's the part of reading I want to do. That's the part I like to do. And so I don't want to listen to somebody else making that decision for me, you know, of what I would be doing in my head if I were reading. So that's that's a no go for me. But frankly, a a relatively flat, um, you know, human not monotone, but like also not trying to be fancy, like a just an unadorned AI voice reading the same text would be much better for me than a human actor acting the book. If you know what I mean, it's almost like at at an art level, you know, the equivalent of, uh, you know, like a literary author who does extremely beautiful prose versus, you know, an Isaac Asimov or I'm trying to think of somebody whose style is like almost anti-style. Stephen King is a little bit like this, uh, you know, um, The Bosch books are kind of like this. There's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of metaphor. (laughs) It's basically describing the shit that's in front of you uh, without a lot of floridity. And some people love the floridity and some people just, you know, want to get down to brass tacks. And so some people love the floridity in the narration and I don't want the floridity. I want, you know, I want the opposite. So me personally, I can't, uh, I don't imagine that I'm in the market for any of these things, but also, I don't see a reason to knee-jerk hate it. You know, it's it's kind of like at a personal level, the, like the human individual level of uh, the the innovator's dilemma. Ironically, I listened. I'd never read the uh, innovator's dilemma. I actually listened to it on audiobook. <laughs> um, Clayton Christensen. I had, back in the cassette days, there was an audio bookstore in Atlanta, and we would. Uh, what was there? There was a Baja Fresh, I think, right next door. We would go eat near this thing back when I worked at the awful um, security company in Atlanta. Not the other security company, but the first security company. The same one that I said uh, in a previous show, in the Quiet Quitting show, the same one I said that fired all the people. This was that company. And we would go to lunch somewhere kind of uh, uh, Dunwoody-ish. Not Dunwoody. Um, whatever. the Sandy Springs. I'm I'm blanking on my Atlanta. Sandy it was kind of Sandy Springs-ish, kind of up Roswell Road, like over by where Taco Mac is, if you know this. Like just out just north of the the perimeter. And so there was a Baja Fresh or something in this big, you know, uh there was probably a, you know, a Whole Fresh or something, you know, or a I don't know, a Kroger or something as the anchor store. And then there was an audio bookstore. The whole book was audiobooks and it was cassette tapes possibly some CDs. And then um, you could even, one of my coworkers had this plan because, you know, we lived in Atlanta, which meant we commuted. And, uh, you know, if you lived in Alpharetta and you worked in Buckhead, it means you were in the car somewhere between 40 and 90 minutes each way every day. So books on tape, uh, you know, better than talk radio uh, at the time. So there was a plan where you could take out, it was basically like a lending library. You could take out X number of books per month, like say four books a month. You just get it, take it back, get another one, take it back. And so the, the, it was closer to a blockbuster than a Barnes and Noble because the, um, the intention generally is that you would be bringing this cassette back and generally you were buying a used cassette and then you'd return it for credit. It's almost like more like GameStop, right? You know, it, it's quite possible that the uh, artifact when you're done with it is going back to the store and that you only need it for a time. Um, somewhere in there, they were having some sort of currency sale. And I believe I bought a couple different, um, a couple different things for like a buck each. And I bought the got to have been condensed and abbreviated because it fit on a single cassette, but the innovators dilemma actually read by Clayton Christensen. And I, what's the guy his name, nom de plume, was Rage Boy. And I don't remember the guy's actual name. He was one of the four Clue Train Manifest of Dudes. And I cannot, I'm blanking on his name. I also got one of his books. And he was like complete nut. So in both cases, I actually kind of liked Clayton Christensen's because it's interesting, but a dry book. And he kind of gave it an interesting, but dry read. You know, he's the Harvard dude and or whatever, wherever he was from. And uh, the Rage Boy one was just like listening to, it was like the J.D. Pincus of business books. So it was uh, quite interesting. But um, the, 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 all of this stuff, 
the you know the knee jerk hatred of this will put people out of work. It feels kind of like an innovator's dilemma. You know, the, you can't move forward when you've got a vested interest to protect. You can't, you know, Toyota. We can see the innovator's dilemma happening with Toyota. They had the Prius. When did they let? When did they first release a Prius? Like two thousand eight or two thousand five? I mean, it was a long time ago. And all those sons of bitches had to do was put a power plug and a charger, take out the engine and put in a bigger battery, and they had a fully electric car. And they could have done this, you know, one or two years after. They could have had the Prius hybrid and also the plug-in. They could have also had the plug-in hybrid and then a fully electric vehicle. And they could have done it, you know, with mostly the same stuff. (laughs) And for some reason, they just have never wanted to do this. And now Toyota is lagging. Toyota, who was so far ahead of the game with the Prius, is sucking wind in EVs and every, you know, all these other Ford (laughs) is ahead of Toyota in the electric vehicle. Ford, (laughs) with their Lightning, is ahead of Toyota's Prius. That is, if you were Toyota, someone should be committing seppuku for this. <laughs> it's ridiculous that you got yourself into this position. But anyway, so the innovator dilemma at the business level, but at the personal level, I kind of feel like that. The whole, like the idea, I mean, obviously, me personally, you got to take everything I say with a grain of salt because, you know, there's going to come a day sooner or later I don't have a job. And so I'm a little less uh, of the, oh, but somebody, you're putting somebody out of work. It's like, yeah, put me out of work, man. (laughs) Go right ahead. But the, uh, the idea that you should keep a thing that sucks because it keeps people employed You know, I don't know. I don't know that this is where I kind of think the MMT idea of the job guarantee would really dovetail with this. You know, it would actually help this because the whole idea, now I'm not talking specifically about audiobook narrating. I'm not, but it just in general, the idea that a disruptive technology will put people out of work. If there's an MMT job guarantee, which is if your industry, if you're an automaker in Detroit and robots come along and just put you all out of work. You will have some job while you retrench. Like nobody that wants to work will be out of work. It seems to me like that reduces some of the stuff, the hanging on to an old thing that should go away because it gives people jobs. Um, if there's a job guarantee, that doesn't, that doesn't have to happen. We don't have to stick around with a legacy thing that, that, you know, it, in the big term, either, you know, either environmentally uh, or just doesn't make sense. You know, it's basically like a, uh, make work, <laughs> keep the bodies there, uh, you know, no show job type, you know, business, the, <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of the Sopranos was the negotiation where they're negotiate, negotiating how many no show jobs and how many no work jobs. So some of them, <laughs> You can just no show, and some of them you have to be there, but you don't have to work, and that's where you have the, like the mob guys sitting around in the folding chairs, <laughs> just drinking all day while on the job site, but not actually working. It's kind of hilarious that those are like categories. But keeping a job that, in general, the whole system doesn't need because just to keep somebody uh, employed, you know, the job guarantee fixes that, and it allows, you know the nation as a whole to be more strategic and it allows, I mean, the whole idea about MMT is do not worry about the number of dollars things cost because dollars are made up. Do worry about the real resources underlying it, which are the natural resources and the water and the minerals and the human resources and the people and the skilled people. So allocate them uh, where it makes sense. Don't claim that you need to preserve dollars because dollars, Dollars are literally a dime a dime. <laughs> They're a dime a dozen. They're a dime a dime. We can make more dollars much easier than we can make new skilled people or new uh, water or new, uh, you know, new uh, lithium deposits or plutonium uh, or whatever. You know, the the uh, money is not the issue. It's resources are the issue. But anyway, with all that said, let me take a fine sip. Mm. It took less time to set up today. So my coffee's still warm. Mm. 
I did not. I sat down to record a show uh, a couple days ago. Um, I think maybe even right before the Christmas break ended. And I didn't actually record the show because I just spent one hour fiddling with the microphone settings to try to make it clip. I could hear it. I don't know if you could hear it in the previous show. There was I, what I was trying to do was control the clipping with my voice by just not ever getting too above a level and kind of knowing where the level is. But occasionally I would get a little excited and, and get beyond it and I could hear the clipping. And every time it happened, it get a little bit crunchy. It wasn't awful, but it was uh, tangible and noticeable. And it, boy, it bugged me. So I sat down to record a show and then ended up just fucking with the microphone settings for so long. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to preserve these settings. I'm not actually recording a show now because I don't have it in me after this. So hopefully uh, everything's better now. A quick topic before we get into a not quick topic. Um, Rudy Rucker, who is uh, one of the founding cyberpunks, uh, mathematics professor for many years and uh, uh, a writer I really like. Um, and I listened to his podcast. He had a pretty early podcast where he would talk to people. If he was interviewed on something, it was very much the, I think, actually, I was going to say it's in the model of Cory Doctor, but I think Cory Doctor actually modeled his podcast on Rudy Records because I believe Rudy was doing it first. And uh, so if he's interviewed somewhere, he would stick it in the the feed. Otherwise, you know, occasionally he'd read his work, he'd read his essays, or if he does a talk somewhere, he'd record the talk. You know, if he's at a bookstore doing an event, he'd record that and, and publish it. And then my feed had been dark for an extremely long time. Well, it turns out uh, it was the classic thing where there's another different feed. And so the feed I was uh, looking at, I was looking at this GigaDial feed that he was using. And uh, that's not the new thing. And so on Mastodon, I was following Rudy Rucker and I saw him post a link to uh, his most recent podcast episode, which isn't crazy recent, but it was within a few months. I was like, huh, Rudy Rucker has a new podcast episode. Why am I not getting them? And then I you know, tracked it down to the feed. I was like, oh, well then, I guess. So I actually looked and I found the point where uh, uh, I guess he stopped posting to Gigadile. Um, I said, okay, everything older than this, I'm not going to listen to. So I've got like seven year backlog of Rudy Rucker podcasts uh, in my uh, ear holes. Which is not as many episodes as it sounds. It's like 30 episodes, but it was like over the sport course of seven years. So it's almost like, um, you know, when you have a dormant feed that comes back to life, it's kind of like that. It's just that um, I was the dormancy. Is that, that might be the show title. I was the dormancy. It makes no sense. Probably terrible SEO, but I think I kind of like it. I'm going to talk about my Zigbee um, journey. So for those not in the know, Zigbee is one of the ways you can do uh, home automation-y things. Many of the devices that you get, you plug in and they connect to your Wi-Fi. And so uh, what's happening is, you know, if you uh, talk to one of your voice assistants and they turn a light on and off or change the color of a light or something, uh, your voice assistant is telling the cloud to do a thing and then the device is getting some kind of communication from the you know, like the cloud service back to the device, right? That's how those Wi-Fi things work. And that's a strategy, and it kind of works. If your internet goes out, that means you can't turn your lights on and off if you have no public internet, which is, you know, a problem. And this happens, right? The, it, you know, there are times where you have a brief, like your cable modem goes out for five minutes at sunset and your lights don't turn on because they missed, they all missed that signal that says, turn me on. There's another different way to do this. And so there's a thing called Zigbee. And in this case, the signals um, are happening. They're not going through the public internet. They're happening locally. So there's a, this little networking. It actually happens on the same spectrum as some of the Wi-Fi, but, but it's not Wi-Fi. It's like a, a different networking business happening. And it happens basically inside your house. Now, the downside of this is with the Wi-Fi things, you don't need anything special. You connect to your Wi-Fi and everything works. You know, like I said, it has some downsides, but it also has an extremely sim simple setup. With Zigbee, this mesh network that it creates, you need a central thing in the mesh network. So you need what's called a coordinator, aka a hub. So like if you buy a Philips hub or a Samsung SmartThings hub, that's actually what those things are. So they're like the central thing in your Zigbee um, network. And so when you uh, connect a new Zigbee thing, you're telling, you know, you you tell that thing to find new stuff and you put it in pairing mode and it connects. Well, 
here's how I went from having no Zigbee devices in my, in to uh, suddenly being like so all in on Zigbee that I, I think I'm replacing Wi-Fi with Zigbee. I had these old Samsung, I think I had bought them on some kind of super sale. I had a couple Samsung motion sensors. And I kind of thought about, I would just like in my office at night when I walk in uh, and it's dark in the house, I would like to walk in and just have the lights turn on. It's like, okay, well, Samsung motion sensor. And it's a, this, the other thing is a lot of these sensors, they're not Wi-Fi because Zigbee is low, very low power. And the like Wi-Fi is much higher power. So if you get a battery, you know, like a little tiny battery powered sensor, if it was on Wi-Fi, it would burn the batteries really fast. But Zigbee ones can last, you know, months or years. So the Samsung uh, motion sensors, you know, or a lot of your like temperature, humidity type sensors, they're all Zigbee. And so, but I realized the Echo Plus, like the big cylindrical one, not the tiny little, not the dots, but the big ones have a Zigbee thing in them. Like, okay, great. Let's start there. So you can tell the, essentially you can have the Zigbee find stuff. So I put my Samsung thing, pull the little plastic thing out, which puts it into pairing mode. And then I tell uh, my Lady A device to find devices. And lo and behold, the damn thing works. And it finds my motion sensor, which is all well and good. Now, the problem, for very first problem I came into, which is I want to integrate this whole stuff into Home Assistant because, you know, everything else is in Home Assistant. And when I have, you know, motion happening, I want essentially to trigger a Home Assistant routine that says, okay, let's, let's go. Well, the motion sensor that I have is in the Amazon ecosystem, which is kind of a walled garden that's separate from Home Assistant. Home Assistant doesn't just natively see that. Like, well, shit. What do, what do I do? Well, it turns out Home Assistant has this thing called an input Boolean, which literally is just that. It's you. They have this notion of entity, which is just like anything in the system, you know, like a sensor. If you have a, you know, like my Echo B things have a presence and a temperature and uh, like the power of the battery. All of these things, each of those three things that's happening in that one device, each of those is an entity. So like Echo B, you know, office temperature is an entity and temperature uh, office presence is an entity. So you can create an entity that's literally just a on-off true-false value. And then once you have that thing, you can expose that to Amazon. So in Amazon, I can have this routine that says, when you detect motion, uh, set this input, bo- set this thing to true. From Amazon, it looks like a switch, and it really it just treats it like a switch. I say, turn the switch on, and then when there's been no motion for X amount of time, I think I had five, and then I'm up to, to ten. When there's ten minutes of no motion, turn the switch off. So what that does is, in Home Assistant, it actually sees that thing turning on and turning off. So then I use that thing as a trigger, which kind of kludgy. Again, the Rube Goldberg machine, it's got failure points, it's kind of, you know, hokey. It's like, well, okay. I mean, it works. Now, if you think about what I just talked about, you do all that stuff for any one thing. Let's say you put more Zigbee devices in and you pair them into, uh, into your Amazon device. And then you want to use all those with Home Assistant. Now you got to do all of that shit for every device that you do. And that uh, becomes an unscalable drag. And then also, let's say you make some change to something, and then I get to change all of that stuff. It's like, ugh. Well, it also turns out, Sonoff, uh, purveyor of fine, cheap-ass IoT shit, for 20 bucks. It is, by the way, the, the price has recently raised to 20 bucks for this thing. It's like a dongle. It looks just like a, a big, big-ish USB stick. It looks like the USB sticks used to be like 15 years ago, you know, uh, about the size and shape of the uh, that gum draw gum stick iPod, <laughs> the one with no, no uh, screen on it, just a button, right? It's about that size, and you you can plug this thing into Home Assistant, and if you do, this thing is a Zigbee radio, and it can be a coordinator. So you plug that thing into your Home Assistant Raspberry Pi, like I have, and now it generates this. Uh, integration. And now that thing can be the Zigbee coordinator. 
Now, what really triggered all that is um, that we bought another um, for Christmas on my wish list. I bought another a cheap Sonoff motion sensor, um, which is also Zigbee, and I wanted it to um, to put it in the mailbox. So from my office where I'm at, I have almost a line of sight to the mailbox uh, with some trees in between. I can't quite see it, but it's I believe 100 feet, and so I you know, did some research on the um, range of these things is a hundred feet. Can this thing get there? And it says, yes. Um, so we got this cheap sound off thing, put it in the mailbox. Doesn't actually reach far enough. I was like, God damn it. And so what I ended up doing was blaming, um, blaming the echo dot. I thought, ah, this echo dot can't be uh, that good. So I get this sound off thing and I was getting it mainly for range because it kind of it does have an actual antenna, you know, like how um, you know Netgear uh, Wi-Fi routers used to have those like foldable antenna things, that antenna with a little hinge, so you can uh, you know direct it a little. It's got that same antenna, probably the, the identical thing that was on old uh, Wi-Fi routers. And uh, so I figured this thing will have a better range. That Sonoff thing still doesn't connect. <laughs> so I get that Sonoff stick in. I switch that. I I repair my uh you know my cheap um motion sensor to uh the cheap Zigbee coordinator on Home Assistant. It finds it just fine. Everything works fine. When I carry it out to the mailbox, at some point it just loses connection. It's just not not got enough oomph. I'm like, ah shit. What do I do now? So then I realized at some point when I bought those cheap on clearance Samsung motion sensors, I bought two of them. I'm like, I have another one somewhere. So I dig for it. I find the thing still in the box. Also, never been, uh, never even been opened or activated. So I activate that, and I pair that to uh, Home Assistant, like the Zigbee Home Assistant thing, and it works great. And I carry it out to the mailbox, and guess what? It reaches. <laughs> Oddly enough, the Samsung device is a little better than the cheap Chinese uh, device. Has better range. <clears throat> Possibly it would have, if I had paired that thing to the Echo Dot, it might have re- reached all the way to the mailbox. But you know what? Um, it's better now because now I'm directly, my Zigbee stuff is directly talking to Home Assistant. I actually have more capabilities that way. It just makes more sense. And so it gets the it gets the uh, Amazon out of it. So at this point, I repair everything. I put everything back into pairing mode. Now, everything that was talking to the Echo Dot now talks to uh, the Zigbee radio on my Home Assistant. All well and good. Everything's fine. I've got sensors. Uh, I actually uh, got a Zigbee plug. The other thing about Zigbee is it's an it makes a mesh network. So as long as you have devices, they will talk to each other um, and they will expand the reach. So it's just it's built into the protocol that they kind of mesh themselves. Now your battery operated devices do not contribute to the mesh because you know they're not they're trying to conserve power. But anything you plug into the wall, so uh, you know, anything that has power all the time, those things are a mesh. They're like a repeater. So I actually bought a cheap Sonoff Zigbee plug when I was trying to to see if that would, if I plugged that thing into the garage, would that thing get uh, the signal from the mailbox? <laughs> so there's a lot of fiddling here, you know. Um, so now I have the Zigbee plug. I'm like, well, okay. Sorry, paired the Zigbee, you know, I had to pair the Zigbee plug to Home Assistant. I'm like, well, now I got a plug. And I put that in the kids' room. And now the cheap Sonoff I put in the kids' game room. Not the kids' r- bedroom, but the kids' game room. And then I took that Zigbee plug that I already had and put that in the game room and plugged a lamp into it. Because um, certainly uh, I've been in the situation where I walked into there you know, at dusk or flat out uh, night just trying to w- walk in and grab one thing and uh, trip over something <laughs> before I get to the light. I was like, oh. so I put a, uh, uh, that motion sensor so that it catch, catches you right when you walk in the room, turns on the Zigbee plug. Uh, it doesn't have to be Zigbee, right? Once I got this in Home Assistant, this literally could be any Home Assistant thing. I'm like, well, hell, I have the Zigbee thing. Let's just put the Zigbee thing in there. And now I realize I kind of like this. I kind of like the whole Zigbee thing. And because Home Assistant's controlling the stuff, and sits inside my house. If I were to lose internet, which seldom happens, but let's say it happened, that I have power but no internet, all the Zigbee stuff is going to keep going. <laughs> the 
anything that requires like every Wi-Fi switch and light is not going to operate properly. Every Zigbee thing is going to keep going forward. I was like, I kind of like this. And now once I sort of got the Zigbee religion, I realized the more Zigbee stuff I have, the better it will all be because it will, you know, it will mesh together. So at this point I have the coordinator sitting in my office. I have one powered plug sitting in the game room and then some sensors. Now, also, I talked about the Wiz, the cheapo Wiz, which I guess are f- made by Philips. And these things were on Super Sale Black Friday at Walmart. And these are color-changing light bulbs. And I bought a couple of them. They were like $5 each for color-changing bulbs, which is pretty good. And they're actually made by Philips, even though they no longer say Philips on the box, but they are Philips bulbs. Here's the problem. Almost everything about them is great, other than the fact that apparently they if you have a mesh Wi-Fi, they do very poorly when they move from one thing to the other. So, you know, if they're kind of equidistant or equisignalant, is that a word? If they have about the same strength of signal of your two or more things, if they stop talking from one to the other, they go offline. It's super annoying. So you leave them on so that the they can be, you know, the they turn on on motion. But um, okay, I will lose some of them off the network, and I just have to like flip the light switch off and on to tr- you know reboot the light switch. Fucking annoying. Also, the ones that are hanging over my desk in the fixtures, I never change the color on. They're just it's like it's actually kind of ridiculous to have color changing bulbs that I'm just always going to leave white. So I said, well. Screw it. Let's get a couple Zigbee light bulbs <laughs> to put in there. So on order from Amazon, showing up in a couple of days will be a couple of Zigbee light bulbs that will go in there. I'm like, fine. And I said, you know, while I'm at it, I might as well get a couple plugs. <laughs> so I've got, I think, two more Zigbee plugs and a couple of Zigbee light bulbs. And so uh, uh, at some point, uh, the, the house will go. We'll see how it goes. I, I will, I'm going to stop there when I get this stuff. And see how it goes. Conceivably, as I've been talking about how, uh, you know, um, taking out brands I like less, instead of having, you know, seven different apps, you know, each of which uh, controls one or two light bulbs or one or two, um, one or two uh, switches. If it, when they're Zigbee, the other thing about them being Zigbee is it none of them have a app like I only control them with Home Assistant. So there's not, you know, a Wemo app and a uh, eWeLink app and a Philips app and a whatever app, which just gets maddening after a while. I only control them one way, and that's with Home Assistant. So uh, there's a, a certain power to that. So if I like this, I might, um, I might eventually replace literally everything with Zigbee stuff. And I kind of, the other thing about Zigbee is over time, I barely understand this. The whole matter IoT stuff. When I listen to the IoT podcast, they lo- they've been talking about matter for two years. Somehow or another, it has some relationship to Zigbee. I think it maybe it rides in the Zigbee protocol. Uh, something about this. So, despite the fact now here's where it actually gets absurd. Everything in here kind of is justifiable up until the thing I'm about to tell you, which is to say, I have this working Zigbee mesh network. Turns out there's this also thing built for Home Assistant that is more or less the same thing, which is a USB stick that's also a Zigbee radio um, that is, I think, manufactured for Home Assistant. Like, they spec'd it out, and they're selling it. Um, And then when Matter, at some point, it's going to get an over-the-air update that will add Matter support. So without doing anything, uh, you will just have Matter if you have that thing. It's like, so now I've got one of those things on order, which also means when I get that thing, if I switch from my Sonoff to that thing, I have to redo my whole Zigbee network one device at a time for a third time. <laughs> um, that one may actually sit in the box until uh, the matter stuff actually happens. But <sighs> six weeks ago, I had no Zigbee in this house whatsoever. And now I'm pre-ordering Zigbee devices that I'm not even going to get until February uh, and unplugging working Wi-Fi devices in favor of Zigbee. That, my friends, 
<laughs> there is your slippery slope. That is how they get you. <coughs> I think in uh you know in the home automation connected world, I think the in the final result is I'm actually going to like things better. Um, it actually probably makes more sense to have lots of Zigbee devices than a couple of Zigbee devices. I think, you know, like I said, it's with the mesh nature, the auto meshing nature, um, a house full of them is stronger than uh, a couple of lone ones at various points around the house. You know, the house full of them, uh, you know, you got great connectivity everywhere. You have this like, uh, robust Zigbee network as opposed to barely stretching to your mailbox and all this other stuff. So we shall see. Here's the other irony of ironies. I got all this stuff set up. I put the thing out there. I've got an automation that says when the mailbox detects, the mailbox sensor detects motion, notify me. The whole point of all of this stuff was so that I don't make extra walks to the mailbox <laughs> Which is, you know, it's not miles, but, you know, it's a big yard. And so, uh, you know, it's a 100 yards from leaving my office to walk to the mailbox. And um, just so that I don't do that like three times a day until the mail comes. I just want to know when the mail comes. Since I set all this stuff up, for some reason, we're not getting mail delivery. So the first day I set it up, I'm like, something's not working. So I go out and I open the mailbox, no mail, but boom, immediately, as soon as I open the mailbox, I get my stuff triggers. I'm like, well, shit, everything's working. And then I I just didn't have faith in it because it hadn't hadn't ever actually worked in the real world. And then the next day I'm like, huh, what's, what's happening here? Uh, I did, it's, you know, 3 PM and I never got, you know, the mail runs. Sometimes the mail runs at like 1045, 11. And sometimes it runs at like two or three. And I never, you can never tell. So it got to be late in the afternoon. I'm like, it still hasn't done. And I lost faith again. I walk out there, open it, boom, no mail, and boom, immediately. It's like, shit. So now, on top of all this other stuff, I have to go to the mailbox and say, why are we not getting mail? What has happened to our mail delivery? <laughs> oh, my Lord. So uh, final thing is, uh, you probably heard um, in the episodes right before the holiday break. This holiday break was long for me. It was like more than two weeks. We had those couple days in Atlanta. It was mostly, uh, you know, holiday time in the house. Other than that trip to Atlanta, which for me, you know, was shaved almost down to half of the trip by getting there late and leaving early. Um, what was I in Atlanta? I was in Atlanta for just barely f- over 48 hours. Um, 48 hours and a wake up. <laughs> 48 waking hours, let's say. And uh, it was just, uh, so I had over two weeks of time. And of course, I was full of optimism. And I will tell you, of that list of things I wanted to accomplish, practically none of that happened. My mom's shit still everywhere. My office is still a disaster. Um, I got some Plants vs. Zombies played. I got some comic books read. But in terms of actual, like, moving balls forward, and I, I did some Zigbee shit. But uh, in terms of the physical mess in this uh, th- this joint, oh, my God, do I – I keep saying I want my mom's stuff uh, gone, uh, either to cousins or the trash or, you know, the, the minority of it, you know, handled however it's going to get handled. In actuality, I'm not putting the time in. I, I – I think I can say I want this to happen all I want, but the reality is I don't still don't want to touch it. I just don't want to deal with it. I have a temptation. I don't know that I'm going to do this. I don't know I'm going to act on it, but I absolutely have a temptation to just having scanned through uh, and pulled out some of the big important stuff. I have a picture of me when I was probably one year old wearing a, um, a little sweater that says, you know, class of 87. It says 87, class of 87. Someone fucked up the math. That's not even the class I was in. That's the wrong. It was two years off. Somebody just did the math wrong and they did all this stuff. But there's a picture, a little picture of me, cherubic little one year old me sitting there in this uh, sweater. I have that freaking sweater in my office right now. What do you do with this sweater? I, 
it, this is exactly the stuff. Is it feels wrong to throw it away, and I don't fucking want this thing. So what the hell do I do with the sweater? I guess it was like the stu- my mom's cedar chest was full of stuff like this. I'm like, ugh. Of some minor sentimental value and no actual value of any kind. It's like, so I came very, I mean, and this thing that says 87, like I could give it to Goodwill, but what baby, what do you want a baby clothes that say 87? I mean, <laughs> it's just stupid. So it has no value to anyone else to, but me. And it has no value to me. And it also makes you feel guilty for throwing it away. It's like, there is a no win on this shit, man. So anyway, what I'm saying is to to uh, echo what Sienna Stewart, the entirety of her Dying Kindness podcast is, is friends, throw that shit away so that your children or your uh, ante- antecedents don't have to. Whoever deals with your stuff when you're dead, throw this shit away for them. Don't make them make these hard choices. Make the choices for them. All right? That's uh, your public service announcement. Uh for everyone who will die one day, as Sienna says. All right. Thank you, friends. Thank you for listening. Oh, well, up at the beginning, I was talking about the blog. If you want to Mastodon follow the blog, it's at Dave at EvilGeniusChronicles.org. It is the same thing as the email address, but in Mastodon format. So Dave at EvilGeniusChronicles.org. Send me email and or Mastodon this blog. So if you want to get either uh, the show announcements uh, or all the weird tests that I was doing on a Saturday night to try to figure out why tags aren't properly showing up in my posts. Um, there you go. You can be a part of all that. <clears throat> Send your feedback to the email portion of that, dave at evilgeniuschronicles.org. Um, <clears throat> if you want to subscribe to me on Mastodon or follow whatever you do, whatever the verb is on Mastodon, uh, you know, or join the Discord or all that stuff, the links are in the show notes at evilgeniuschronicles.org chronicles.org i thank you for listening i thank you for participating uh come let's go prosecute the new year the best of our abilities and make it uh it and everything as good as we can and as you do that let's not forget that i love you good bye when that's over if we're still alive i'll clean my own fucking mess up